When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Shannon D. Williams, the author of Subversive Habits, Black Catholic Nuns in the Long African-American Freedom Struggle. How are you doing today, Professor? I'm doing well. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Yes, thank you so much for having me on, Dr. Tyler. Uh, It's really a privilege. Um, I am a historian of the African-American experience with research and teaching specializations in women's, religious, and Black freedom movement history. I am a historian of the Black Catholic experience and specifically Black Catholic women and girls. Uh, I am also a cradle Catholic. So um, if there was a line that one could say about me, I'm a Black Catholic woman who studies Black Catholic women. Um, But Knowing that about me, one might think one might think that I came to this project um, in search of my own understanding of what it means to be Black Catholic women uh, in the Catholic Church, and nothing could be further from the truth. Although I am Catholic, I knew very little Black Catholic history, and I did not know that Black nuns existed until 2007 when I entered graduate school at Rutgers. Um, I came to this project simply through an interest in Black Catholic women's activism and leadership in the Black Power Movement. My first year at Rutgers, I took a seminar with a pioneer in Black women's history, Dr. Deborah Gray White, and I wanted to impress my professor. And so I literally went to the library one day and started going through microfilmed editions of Black-owned newspapers in search of a topic that would um, uh, impress my professor. And I stumbled upon an article from the Pittsburgh Courier in 1968 announcing the formation of a Black Power Federation of Catholic nuns called the National Black Sisters Conference. And I experienced what I can only call a metanoia. Up until that moment, I had never seen a Black nun. I did not know that they existed in the church. In fact, the only Black sister that I knew at the time was Sister Mary Clarence, who was the character, uh, fictional character played by Whoopi Goldberg in Sister Act. And I wanted to know why. Uh, I am the daughter of the first Black woman to graduate from the University of Notre Dame. Uh, My mother was educated in Catholic schools for the entirety of her formal education and spent her elementary and high school education uh, in Black Catholic schools in Savannah, Georgia. And so that evening, I called my mother and asked if she knew about the history of Black nuns. And she said no. Um, She said only white nuns taught her in the Black Catholic schools of Savannah And then my mother said something to me that just sticks with me. She said, but I wish I had known. I wish we'd had Black nuns in Savannah when I was growing up. 
And I was stunned by that. So not only did I set out to learn about the National Black Sisters Conference, I also wanted to know why Black nuns were invisible in my mother's and my life. And I did, you know, what any sort of young graduate student does. You know, I went to the databases. I found every book that I could find on Black Catholics, anything that had been written on Black nuns. I also Googled the National Black Sisters Conference and learned that their papers had been archived at Marquette University. And I had a list of sisters' names um, who had been a part of the National Black Sisters Conference from those preliminary searches. And so I started calling and writing mother houses and Catholic institutions to see if some of these women, um, those who were in religious life and those who had left, um, were alive and if I could interview them for the paper. And that is what uh, led to the project. Um, Initially, I thought I would just write about Black nuns and Black power. But after my oral history interviews, it became clear that I had to tell a larger story. And I was largely encouraged by the founding president of the National Black Sisters Conference, Dr. Patricia Gray, who was formerly Sister M. Martin DePores Gray, who was Pittsburgh's first Black religious sister of mercy. Um, She was somebody who was described as one of the most intellectually talented and charismatic sisters of her generation. But when she left religious life, she stopped giving interviews. And so when she agreed to speak with me, she did so on a condition, one that I not write a book simply about her or Black nuns and Black power, but that I turn my attention to the largely unacknowledged and largely under-researched history of the nation's Black sisterhoods. And she said, you know, if you can, try to tell all of our stories. And so Subversive Habits came about with my attempt to, one, understand the invisibility of Black sisters in my life, but also as an attempt to complete a project that had been launched by the National Black Sisters Conference in the early 1970s, which was to write a history of Black nuns in the United States. So Subversive Habits provides the first full history of Black Catholic sisters in the United States um, and turns critical attention to women's religious life as a stronghold of white supremacy and racial segregation, and thus an important battleground of the African-American freedom struggle. You know, you start the book on June 1968 with Sister Antoinette Ebo. Tell us about her story. Sister Mary Antoinette Ebo is was arguably one of the best-known Black sisters in the United States, in part because she was a member of the inaugural delegation of Catholic nuns who went to Selma in 1965, who was featured um, uh, in various newspapers across the country after her famous stand. Um, She's also a member of the pioneering generation of African-American Catholic women and girls who desegregated white sisterhoods after World War II. In fact, in 1946, she is a part of this famous desegregation of a white community in St. Louis that in many ways has been or can be looked at as a turning point when her nursing community decides to admit five African-American women uh, that year. And so as a member of that generation, she will, like so many pioneers um, who desegregate white orders, endure unconscionable racism in her community. The first Black members of her community were admitted only on a segregated basis. They had to live separately, dine separately. They were even forced to profess their vows in a segregated um, ceremony. Um, Despite that, um, she will go on to break barriers like so many pioneering Black sisters in white communities. She's believed to be the first Black woman to head a Catholic hospital in the nation, and she will go on to found 
uh, or be a founding member of the National Black Sisters Conference. So she is arguably one of the church's best known black sisters. And she's also uh, the church's perhaps most endurable link uh, or durable link to the to the black freedom struggle. She's in Selma in 1965, and then she's on the streets of Ferguson um, protesting the police murder of Michael Brown Jr. So um, she is one of these forgotten prophets of American Catholicism and democracy that I champion in the book. Now, when we read about the history of the racial justice in the Catholic Church, it's mostly the stories of the white sisters who taught at the all-black schools. What was your finding here regarding uh, social justice and black education? So the first thing that we have to remember is that um, black sisters, um, black lay women and black sisters are the pioneers of formal black Catholic education in the United States, not white sisters. And one of the main arguments that my book makes and one of the myths that I they tackle in my book is this notion that just because white sisters led black schools during slavery and or Jim Crow segregation, um, just because they did so signifies a commitment to racial justice and equality. And what my findings reveal is that nothing can be further from the truth. Um, so often we think we sort of focus on these images, these really powerful images of white sisters, primarily white sisters, marching for civil rights in the 1960s as evidence of their pioneering um, racial justice activism in the church. But I argue that that one can only make that argument if you ignore <laughs> the history of Black sisters and you misrepresent Black sisters' histories. Again, Black sisters are the first formal, uh, Black sisters and Black lay women are the first formal educators of Black Catholics, meaning that they found schools specifically for Black Catholics because so many of the nation's earliest Catholic institutions would not um, teach Black children or would only teach them on a segregated basis. Uh, more so than that, um, when I began interviewing the members of the historically Black sisterhoods, I came to realize how limited white sisters' commitments to racial justice and ra racial equality were. Um, I initially thought that the members of the nation's Black sisterhoods entered those communities because they were educated by those communities. And time after time, I realized that many of those sisters had been educated by white sisters and then rejected admission into the communities of their educators on the basis of race. Um, I also realized that many of them had stories of, of, of abuse, um, experienced abuse um, in their white administered Catholic schools, whether it is sort of sister white sisters using uh, racially derogatory language, denigrating African-American culture, using unjust corporal punishment. Um, it was really... Um, an eye-opening experience for me to begin to sort of think about um, how that history had been misrepresented, but also turning my attention to the nation's Black sisterhoods, who are not only the progenitors of Black Catholic education, but also um, the first representatives of the church to um, teach um, and propagate um, the, of Black and Black Catholic history within church boundaries. And so it's a far more complicated story without dismissing, right, sort of the important work that sisters, both Black and white, did in the, uh, in the Black community, not discounting the important role that the Catholic Church played in Black, Catholic, in black education, um, primarily during the Jim Crow era, but also recognizing that that story is a bit more complicated than um, has previ previously been admitted. 
Now, can you discuss the attitudes about black female celibacy in the Catholic Church? I thought you brought out some really good points in your book. Absolutely. Um, so we get black sisterhoods because white orders will not admit black women, right? Um, it's not that uh, black women were not called to European and white American communities. They were rejected admission on the basis of race using ideas about black sexuality that suggested that black people were inherently immoral, um, uh, and sexually promiscuous. So much of that discourse emerges um, with the rise of the transatlantic slave trade as a way to justify European colonization, um, slavery, and segregation, both in Africa and then in the Americas. And so when we talk about Black sisters and celibacy, there is this idea, or at the heart of this ideology of white Christian supremacy, is this idea that Black people, and especially women and girls, um, do not have virtue. And so when we think about Black women embracing the celibate religious state in the Roman Catholic Church, an institution largely responsible for the rise of the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in the Americas, um, we have to sort of recognize that as a radical act. In a church and in a society that deemed all Black people immoral, these women rejected that. um, And they embodied this fundamental truth, not only that Black history is Catholic history, but that Black people were being called to religious life. And we know how powerful and radical this is because they face profound resistance. Um, The first members of the Ablay Sisters of Providence face resistance both within the community, uh, within uh, the Catholic community, within the church, and also outside of the church. You have early clerics describing them as a profanation of the habit. In the case of the Sisters of the Holy Family, the second successful African-American sisterhood, they were denied the opportunity to wear habits, um, formal clothing sort of denoting their religious status for the first 40 or 50 years of their existence. And yet we also know that these women very consciously are fighting back against this. In the case of the Oblate Sisters of Providence, who are the nation's and the modern world's first successful community of sisters, Roman Catholic nuns, freely open to Black women and girls, um, we know that prior to the Civil War, they admitted at least eight women into their ranks who were born into slavery. And so they are the first Catholic sisterhood, U.S. sisterhood that we know, who rejects the racist and sexist notion that a, a woman born into slavery uh, lacked the inherent value, uh, lacked the inherent virtue necessary to enter religious life. Their story is also significant because they're one of the few um, sisterhoods and religious orders of women. Um, and I would say that for their male counterparts as well, that do not own enslaved people, that they do not rely upon the labor of enslaved people in their day-to-day lives. And so their story is important for us because they serve as the essential counterpoints to those who suggest or attempt to defend or excuse their slaveholding and segregation as peers, as people of their times. But we have to remember that the early abolitionists of Providence, including their foundress, servant of God, Mother Mary Lange, is also a woman of those times. They are women of those times who reject these um, violent regimes of power. And in the case of the Sisters of the Holy Family, we know that after the Civil War, these are women who are buying up properties uh, associated with the sins of slavery and sexual abuse of Black women and girls during slavery and turning them into their um, earliest Catholic institutions that serve Black communities. So we really have to think about this as a story also of Black feminism and of Black women's resistance to the sexual terrorism built into chattel slavery and segregation. Now, I thought this was really interesting, the picture of 1947 of the sister in the segregated 
church marching to the segregated altar. Tell us the significance of that. You know, in the history of Black women desegregating white orders, I have heard through oral histories and also in the historical record of cases in which white communities, um, through their commitments to white supremacy, refused to allow their Black members to profess their vows um, on an equal basis with their white counterparts. Um, I heard that happen to a, a sister, Patricia Haley, who was the first black sister of charity of Nazareth. Um, and in that particular image that I included, um, I ha- we have a photo of one of this segregated profession that is being made by um, pioneering black members of an order. Um, what's also significant about that image, um, outside of the fact that you see this and we have the documented proof of these of white sisters' commitments, um, the depths of their commitments to white supremacy. Um, in that photo, there are two members of the Oblate Sisters of Providence um, uh, seated. And what we know is that members of the Oblate Sisters of Providence regularly attended the investiture and profession ceremonies of pioneering Black sisters and white congregations in a show of solidarity and support. Many of these women who desegregated white communities were oftentimes educated by black nuns and then went on to desegregate these white communities with the support of their black educators. I think what's also extraordinary about this image is that it captures um, the lengths that white sisters, even those considered racially progressive, engaged in to enforce black subjugation in their communities. It also illustrates that the earliest and most committed proponents of racial equality in women's religious life, specifically those people who were willing to suffer greatly in the face of unrelenting discrimination in order to lay bare and contest the evil of white supremacy, were Black nuns. So that image to me is arguably... Uh, the far more honest representation of the story of Catholic nuns in the Black freedom struggle than any of the now iconic and widely accessible images of mostly white nuns marching for racial justice in the 1960s. Black sister stories, they were called to a life of poverty, obedience, but then they had to fight racism and sexism. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about that. So at the beginning of my book, I tell not only the story of Sister Mary Antona Ebo, but in the preface, I tell the story of Dr. Patricia, Patricia Gray, who again was the chief architect of the National Black Sisters Conference, who was Pittsburgh's first Black religious sister of mercy. Um, again, she is described as one of the most intellectually talented and charismatic sisters of her generation. We know that she is the only woman present at the, present at the founding of the Black Catholic Clergy Caucus in 1968. And yet she is someone who has been written out of history um, in a very conspicuous way. Um, There is one um, sort of landmark study of the Black Catholic community published by Father Cyprian Davis um, in 1990 called The History of Black Catholics in the United States. Father Cyprian is a founding member of the Black Catholic Clergy Caucus. If you read his book, Sister M. Martin Napores Gray is not mentioned anywhere. She is not documented as being present (laughs) at that meeting. And certainly from her oral testimony, um, what she shared with me um, in time for the book, and then later after the book has come out, you know, she says that she has an ugly encounter, um, a a very ugly encounter where she is confronted by uh, several of overtly misogynistic Black priests um, who try to throw her out. And what she told me after the fact, she said they surrounded me and screamed at me for 30 minutes to get out. 
And so a lot of people don't talk about the Black Catholic clergy founding because you have to explain what happened to Sister M. Martin DePores Gray. She's written out of Cyprian Davis's work. Um, in fact, he only he relegates the National Black Sisters Conference to one mention at the very end on a timeline. Um, and so part of the reason why we don't have Black sisters history in part is sort of the racism, but also because of the sexism and specifically the massage noir um, and the ways in which Black sisters had to na- navigate this, not simply within the white community, but far too often from their male counterparts, especially as we move into the 19th and move into the 20th century in the in the mid to late uh, uh, 20th century and really during the civil rights movement. Um, so you'll encounter it certainly during the Jim Crow period and during slavery, primarily from white men and white sisters um, in their verbal assaults and denigration of black culture, black sisters, intellect, etc. Um, you'll encounter the sexism um, from black priests um, primarily as a result of the black Catholic movement of the 1960s and 1970s um, and how these women have to negotiate and contest it at various terms. Um, certainly as Black sisters become very active um, through the National Black Sisters Pro- Conference and empowered by Black power, um, they will encounter priests, uh, Black and white, who want them to step back because in the longstanding absence of an African-American clergy and empowered Black clergy, Black sisters were in many ways um, the best you know, examples of spiritual leadership and educational leadership within the Black community. And so there is resentment involved from many of these individuals who resent Black sisters' leadership, resent the fact that Black lay people will oftentimes listen to Black sisters uh, over them. And so it is a very treacherous battle. Um, At the end or towards the end in the final chapter, I even tell about this really um, terrible incident involving a founding member of the National Black Sisters Conference, Sister Teresita Wynn who is removed from parish leadership in Chicago by an African-American priest who she knew, right, Um, who was seeking to become a bishop. And he reported her to the cardinal in Chicago for um, possibly violating uh, canon law for preaching um, in her parish. And it sort of serves as a very profound sort of dividing point um, within the community based on this history that so many people don't know. Um, this history, a really suppressed history of, of anti-Black misogyny um, within the, com- the nation's community of Black priests um, that my book begins to explore. Now, tell us about Sister Rose Martin Glenn and her fight for equal treatment. So Sister Rose Martin Glenn um, is an amazing figure in this story. I only tell a piece of it. So my next project is going to have to tell uh, her story in greater detail. But she's a pioneering member um, of the Missionary Sister Servants, um, uh, uh, a missionary order. They are the Sister Sister Institute to the SVD priests, the Society of Divine Word priests. But she... um, thought she was the first African-American member of her community. They are the missionary sister servants of the Holy Spirit. So she actually, when I interviewed her, thought that she was the first African-American member of her community. And I had to tell her um, there was actually a woman taken before her. But she is a native of Birmingham, uh, Alabama, who migrates with her family to Chicago during the Great Migration and enters her community in 1958. Um, Like many pioneering Black sisters in white communities, she will face bullying. And she actually didn't go in alone. She actually went in with another woman. I don't get into the details in my book, but I'll give you more details here. She went in with a classmate, but her classmate becomes sick and then is sent home. 
And when she's sent home, um, she tells her her guardians um, that they were being bullied in in, in the convent. And so um, her friend's guardian, grandmother, mother, go and tell Sister Rose Martin Glenn's mother that she's being bullied. And her mother immediately went to the priest and was like, you go get my daughter out of that, <laughs> that convent. Um, and she tells a story of her is a white SVD priest who came and she said, you know, if he'd come the day before, I would have I would have left with him. But I prayed on it and I promised that I would keep my vocation. Um, but she, like many, sort of encounters great bullying in her community. She also, like many black, pioneering Black sisters in white communities, had experienced rejection. Before she was admitted into her community, she had been rejected by the Marion Old Sisters and several other communities, so much so um, that... Um, there was sort of this, her her white spiritual director, Father George Stephen, um, figured that they were, you know, blocking her because of race. And so he took her to the Sister Institute, to his community, and ensured her admission. Um, she will, um, as her community is a missionary community, she desired to go minister in Africa. But, um, you know, she was in religious life. She entered in 58. And yet she had not been allowed to profess her vows by 1967. And you can't profess, you can't do missionary work until you profess final vows. And so she understood that that was being a barrier to her. She had also been barred from going to Selma. Um, she had desired to go to Selma. She had been invited to go by some white priests in Chicago, but her community would not allow her to go because they thought, um, you know, she would become too radicalized. And so when she was denied the opportunity to do mission work in Africa, she threatened to leave the community and join the Peace Corps, which finally prompted her superiors to allow her to profess her vows in Ghana. Um, so she will also be among that pioneering generation of African-American nuns to minister in Africa. Um, she will stay um, over a decade um, and minister but she also talked about some of the challenges that she faced um, due to ongoing racism within her community, so much so that sometimes people didn't realize or didn't know if she was actually a real nun because she was mistreated. Um, but she will come back to the United States, uh, maintain her ministries um, to communities, eventually serving as the director of health services for the Jubilee Schools in the Diocese of Memphis, which were a group of uh, inner city Catholic schools that had been reopened by Memphis's first black bishop um, to provide Catholic education to inner city communities um, in Memphis that were predominantly black and brown. Um, so she has lived a long life, um, but just another amazing story that goes from Birmingham to Chicago to Ghana, um, back to the United States to Memphis, um, and she is now retired. You know, one of the times that you talked about in your book was the 1970s. Tell us about that period when the Black schools closed down. What, what was going on? So, like... Um, across, you know, across the nation in the 1970s, the church is in crisis. Um, large numbers, thousands of men and women are leaving religious life, regardless of race. But also large numbers of Catholic schools and other Catholic institutions are beginning to close down. Uh, many of them were either over capacity or they just simply lack the personnel necessary from um, primarily women religious who are sort of running these institutions often. Um, you know, at very low rates because sister sal sister faculty uh, sister salaries were much lower than that of lay um, lay Catholics, and so um, this crisis is affecting every part of the country, but arguably is more acute in the Black community. 
where inner city schools are closing down at significant rates, even as African-American parents are proving to be these institutions' great champions. But we see a lot of money being directed to development and to support suburbanization and white flight from these inner city communities, which have been the heart of the Northern Catholic Church or the Catholic Church in the the North, Midwest, and West. And so many African-American Catholics see and understand the withdrawal of church support from these inner city institutions um, as a part of the backlash to the civil rights gains of the 1950s and 1960s. And so they organize to preserve these institutions, which they believe are, you know, essential to the survival of the Black Catholic community and evangelization, since most Catholic institutions served as the primary vehicles, or since Catholic schools served as the primary vehicles of evangelization in the African-American community. And so many Black Catholic leaders believe that if these institutions closed, the church would cease to be relevant um, and cease to have moral credibility within the African-American community. So across the country, there are people who are fighting to preserve the Black Catholic educational system, some turning their attention to turning these institutions into community-controlled institutions, or at least trying to hold the church accountable and make sure that it maintains its commitment um, to its longstanding African-American constituencies in evangelization within the African-American community. So we see some huge um, battles, um, you know, sit-in struggles in Detroit, um, protest, open protests in Baltimore, other parts of the country, in longstanding Black Catholic communities throughout the South. Um, it's really um, a moment of great historical drama that unfortunately has been overlooked. Um, and so my chapter does begin to sort of turn our attention back to that with sisters, lay people, um, using every resource at their available to, to try to preserve the Black Catholic educational system that is also being jeopardized as a result of, of, of white-administered desegregation as well. Specifically, if schools were being merged, oftentimes the Black schools will be forced to close and a, a small number of Black students, sometimes a few Black faculty members would be integrated into these um, newly merged institutions, but oftentimes that wasn't the case. And so um, I try to map out in that chapter what it looked like on the ground and then to remind people that Black Catholics, again, have never been politically conservant or indifferent to white, you know, in struggles against institutionalized white supremacy. And certainly the battle for Black Catholic education um, after the Civil War, during the Jim Crow era, and then certainly in the 1970s um, testifies to that reality. Sister Thea Bowman. You could write an entire book about her. Give yes. us some glimpse about her history. Yes. Sister Thea Bowman is one of six African-Americans currently on the road to canonization or to sainthood in the Roman Catholic Church, three of whom are nuns, uh, the founders of the Abilene Sisters of Providence, Mother Mary Lange, uh, the founders of the Sisters of the Holy Family, Venerable Henri DeLille, and then Sister Thea. And Sister Thea is so important for us because she is a member of that pioneering generation of Black women and girls who desegregate the nation's white sisterhoods after World War II. She's originally from Mississippi, um, born the only child of her parents. Her father was an early Black doctor. Um, she's born in Yazoo City, Mississippi. Her mother was a teacher. She is a convert to Catholicism taught by the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration, um, who established a school for Black children in her hometown uh, in which her parents enroll her, and then she eventually uh, converts. Um, she goes to into religious life as a 15-year-old, as an aspirant um, in her community. She leaves home for Wisconsin at 15 and 
like so many, she will encounter unconscionable racism. Um, she is discouraged from singing out loud when she's happy. She endures bullying about her hair texture, her Southern mannerisms. Um, there's even a horrific episode in which an older sister tells her that um, all Black people, the N-word, go to the N-word heaven with the dogs and other animals. Um, and so, you know, she has to endure. Um, she, you know, silences parts of her past to sort of keep herself alive in those spaces, but also fights back at every turn. Um, she will desegregate her high school, Catholic high school, her orders college, Viterbo College um, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, desegregate a host of institutions, desegregate Viterbo as a, as a student, undergraduate, but then she will also become the first black faculty member at Viterbo, the first black chair of a department at Viterbo after she earns her PhD um, in English. Um, which she earns in 1972 from the Catholic University of America, where she teaches uh, the first course in African-American literature at the Catholic University of America. She's a founding member of the National Black Sisters Conference. Um, but I think most people sort of know Thea sort of for her period, for her work in the 1970s, 80s, um, before her death. Um, she pursues a career teaching English and African-American literature just for a few years, but ultimately, and while she still sort of teaches um, at the Institute for Black Catholic Studies um, at Xavier University, which she is a founder of. She will also develop what many called a ministry of love in which she combined African-American preaching, singing, dancing, and historical truth-telling um, to champion the intellectual, cultural, and spiritual gifts of the African-American community um, um, in her ongoing fight for racial, educational, and gender justice within the church. Uh, she famously gives a talk for the bishops in 1989, um, really outlining the history of Black people and Black Catholics in the church and chastising them for their failures to be a fully full, a full living witness for the African-American community. Um, she does this while she is suffering from cancer, terminal cancer. Um, but she is an all-around prophet um, and arguably... Um, you know, already a saint, right? And certainly not even arguably, already a saint in the minds of so many people who knew and loved her um, when she called us to tell the true truth, as she liked to say, about Black people and Black Catholics in, um, in particular, and called us to be our true selves um, in the church. Now, um, you talked a little about racism, sexism, and how that impacts people's health. Would you like to say something about that? Um, absolutely. So almost immediately when I began doing oral histories, so many sisters made mention of pioneering Black sisters in white congregations, as well as pioneering priests, Black priests, and bishops who died young. Sister Thea Bowman is also a, a member of that. She dies, um, uh, she dies in 1990. Um, from terminal uh, sort of bone and breast cancer. Uh, and what's interesting about, you know, her story and so many pioneering Black sisters, she, they die in, you know, she dies in her 50s. She dies um, at 52. Um, 
and in 1990. And so many people believed um, before we even knew and had those studies now that confirm um, that racism actually causes people to die. Like it forces us to sort of, the, that we understood sort of the health consequences of, of anti-Black racism or just white supremacy on Black and brown people's lives and on their bodies. So many people believe that Sister Thea, other pioneering sisters like Sister Dolores Harrell, um, Beatrice Jeffries, Reginalda Polk, so many that die young, um, so many of their counterparts, uh, male and female, and also black and white, believe that their decisions to stay in their communities in the face of intractable bigotry killed them. It was something that was repeated over and over again to me in the oral history interviews, also as explanations for why some black women left religious life after staying in for 20 and 30 years, saying that they needed to save their very lives and minds. And so... It is something that I point to in the project, but I do believe more research needs to be done. But if we're talking about that, certainly the death of Sister Thea Bowman um, was one that really brought it to a fo- brought it to the fore in 1990, and I suspect we'll find more names as more research is done. Now, Sister Smith, she fought for nurses' training. Why is that story so very important? So it's a it's an important story because among the kinds of barriers that black sisters face, black women who desegregate white communities that they face, some of it is just sort of overt bullying, sort of name calling. Some of it, you know, you get bumped in line or whatnot. Um, you sort of deal with people who don't want to use the same facilities as you will get out of the pool or whatnot. There's also a generation of pioneering Black sisters in white communities who were denied opportunities for higher education in their communities. Some of them were relegated to domestic duties within their communities, hidden away in laundries or kitchens. Um, And Sister Smith, uh, Sister Demetria, Mary Demetria Smith, who is the first fully professed missionary uh, sister of Our Lady of Africa, which is a community of nuns that ministered in Africa and they wore white veils. So sometimes they, well, they were oftentimes known as the white nuns of Africa. So Sister Dimitri will say, you know, I'm the first black (laughs) white sister of Africa. Um, In her community, um, she wanted to be a registered nurse and um, her community only allowed her to be um, trained as a licensed practical nurse, which is like a LPN. And she, in our interview, she talked about having to fight for years to be able to get training to become not only a registered nurse, but also a midwife. Um, and again, she's not alone. There are other instances in other communities where sisters who wanted to get their PhDs were not allowed to do so, were denied that opportunity, were denied the opportunity um, on the basis of race. Some women who were not allowed to pursue teaching vocations and relegated to domestic service on the basis of race, not due to their abilities. And so her story is significant um, because she fights back. She will eventually win the right to become a registered nurse and get training. But even further in our interview, she would say just that kind of training um, was sort of very much rooted in this idea that Black sisters were expected to remain beneath and inferior to their white counterparts. And one way that that was systematically done was denying these women opportunities uh, to further their education in communities. Now, you talked about many of the Black nuns that uh, decided to go to Africa. What was this experience like? What was that? You know... It was interesting. Um, You know, the vast majority of African-American sisters who serve, serve in the United States. But you have members, uh, women who join missionary communities like the Mary Knowles Sisters or the Missionary Sisters of Our Lady of Africa and a few other communities um, 
who wanted to become missionaries and wanted to do that work. Um, they do not begin to go until um, the era of de- decolonization uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's a radically um, transformative experience for these women. In the case of one NBS um, founders of the National Black Sisters Conference, a poor Claire nun, Sister Jane Marie Simon, she will actually leave the United States in the late 60s to join a group of white poor Claire sisters who went to establish the first Catholic monastery for women in Zambia. And they wanted to recruit local women into the, the community specifically because they understood that Africa was the home of Catholic Christianity. And so they wanted to sort of they, they were very intentional about that going um, as sort of in the form of colonization, but one of restoring a legacy um, there where it should have been uh, in the birthplace of Christianity. So on the one hand, you have sisters who are trying to reconnect to Africa, like Sister J. Marie Simon, and sort of her work is also modeling sort of the transnational activism of some of the, mo- the major civil rights organizations of the time, especially the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, others who are going as missionaries as a part of their community, but are being radicalized by sort of decolonization. Probably the best example that I give is that of Sister Geneva Lassiter, who is an early, uh, is an early Mary Knoll sister. Um, in some instances, she is identified as the first Black Mary Knoll sister, but she's actually the second. Um, one of their earliest members was a Black woman who could pass for white, who I talk about in the, the footnotes. Um, but what she goes, um, she goes into Tanzania and she gets to play a role in the reconstruction of the uh, of the, the new nation that is coming out of uh, uh, the era of British colonization. Um, she teaches at some of the earliest Catholic institutions um, for Black girls in Tanzania. She teaches black, uh, African history there. Um, she is working with their first president, Julie, Julius Nerere. Um, and so we see Black sisters recognizing the links and acknowledging the links between the African-American freedom struggle and decolonization in Africa. Um, in her particular case, she actually comes back into the United States because she is also She had been forced to confront some of the colonizing attitudes of some of her white counterparts. We know that she comes back in. um, In an interview, she talks about the resentment that she faced from some of her white counterparts who um, felt like she had a deeper connection. It was clear she had a deeper connection to the to the uh, uh, to the Tanzanians uh, than their white counterparts. Um, she also talks about developing anti-racism workshops for her community members to try to uproot some of the missionary mentalities, recognizing um, that they should not go in, go into Africa or any any nation in Africa attempting to sort of teach some ignorant person, you know, how to do things, but rather recognizing that that person um, is of value, has worth and has much to teach you as much as you have to teach that person. And so I think that's really something when we see sort of her 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 recollections of her time in Africa, in Tanzania. She's one of the few members of her community um, that really sort of emphasizes the agency of of the Tanzanians um, um, in their own story, as opposed to sort of promoting this sort of um, uh, sort of a narrative that centers sort of these Western missionaries, right? Even though she's African-American, she's still Western. And so she was very cognizant about that, that I, that I appreciated. Um, that's a few stories, but there are also some other major connections that I get into the book. I won't give it all away. After you, after people read your book, what is the message you like for them to leave with? So 2022, this year, marks the 30th anniversary of Whoopi Goldberg's performance as Sister Mary Clarence in Sister Act. 
So for most people, Goldberg's performance is the dominant interpretation of an African-American nun and the desegregation of a white sisterhood in the United States. My book, Subversive Habits, tells the story of America's real sister act, the story of how generations of Black women and girls called to the sacred vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience fought against racism, sexism, and exclusion to become and minister as consecrated women of God in the Roman Catholic Church. It is impossible to tell an accurate and honest accounting of the American Catholic experience without telling the stories of Black sisters. It is also impossible to tell Black sister stories accurately and honestly without confronting the church's egregious sin histories of colonialism, racism, and slavery. Telling Black sister stories reminds us that there have always been two transatlantic stories of American Catholicism, one that begins in Europe and the other one that begins with African descended people living in Europe and living uh, on, on the African continent. Black Catholics are not anomalies in the story of in the development of the U.S. Catholic Church. Black history is Catholic history and telling Black sisters stories and what their embodiment of that truth, that Black history is Catholic history, is essential to our understanding of the Black Catholic experience. In fact, I and, and essential to our understanding of the American Catholic experience. And in fact, I will go so far as to say that one cannot be considered a, an expert in American Catholicism without stepping foot and doing research in the archives of the Oblate Sisters of Providence, the Sisters of the Holy Family, and going through the records of the National Black Sisters Conference. These are peoples whose roots in the church are as deep and as old, and in many cases older than most of their white and white ethnic counterparts. So telling Black sister stories um, is a way for us to get a more honest and accurate accounting of the U.S. Catholic experience. And that is what I hope Subversive Habits will do for people. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us what is the next project you'll be working on? So Subversive Habits doesn't even begin to scratch the surface uh, of the history of Black sisters in the United States. I did over 100 oral history interviews. And so my next project is to actually bring those oral history interviews um, into one collection so that um, Scholars will have it for generations, but also to remind us that the story of Black sisters is not just one about fighting racism and sexism and exclusion, but it's also a story of beautiful faithfulness. It's a story of people who migrated um, from the cradles of American Catholicism and brought that faithfulness into the urban North, Midwest, and West. It is a story of a Black freedom struggle that we are only yet beginning to understand and learn. And so many of the oral testimonies that I collected sort of tell those stories, and I want to make those available. I'm also working on a documentary history of Black Catholic women in the United States, religious and lay, making sure that we pay attention to the great importance of Black lay women and founding parishes and schools and all of the community work and building that they did on top of everything else. Um, and then um, a couple of other projects that are digital history projects um, that really underscore our need for building new archives um, for the Black Catholic experience. Um, we have traditional archives, but there's so much work that's out there that's scattered um, that needs to be accessible to the next generation of scholars doing this work, paying attention to 
the brutal realities of Catholic slavery and segregation, um, restoring us and naming individuals, enslaved women and girls who fought against slavery, um, who became abolitionists in their own rights, um, telling the stories of the Black women who founded the earliest Catholic communities in the um, what becomes the United States, making sure that we all know that the first Christian marriage that takes place in the land area that becomes the United States is between a free Black Catholic woman um, and a, a, Sp- a free Spanish soldier, again, sort of underscoring the fact that Black Catholics have always been here and are, have never been anomalies in this story. Um, so those are the next two projects, but then a host of other projects, just ensuring um, that we understand the African foundations of U.S. Catholicism, the African foundations of American Catholicism, and center um, the lives, labors, and struggles of Black Catholic women and girls. Thank you so much, Professor, for being on our show, and we look forward to all of your projects. Thank you so much, Dr. Tyler. I really appreciate it.